There are very few words or topics in human society that bring up more vivid images of suffering than that of slavery. It calls to mind pictures of people being stolen, sold, abused, raped, worked to exhaustion, and even murdered. It is no doubt one of human history's greatest sins. While most Christians agree with this, there is some confusion when it comes to slavery in the Bible. I have been in ministry now for over 21 years, and one of the questions that has reoccurred in my ministry is that, why does the Bible have slavery in it? Why does Peter and Paul and the Old Testament talk about slavery and tell slaves to be subject to masters? Why do they not just give some detailed plan how to abolish it and get rid of it? So there's some confusion when it comes to slavery in the Bible. Because when we look in Scripture, we see in the Old Testament the word slavery. We see in the New Testament the Word slavery, the topic of slavery, and we don't see biblical writers giving explicit instructions to abolish it. Now, throughout U.S. history, some professing Christians have even used the Bible to justify race-based chattel slavery. Jefferson Davis, former president of the Confederate States of America, said slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible, both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation, it has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilizations and nations, and the highest proficiency in the arts. Richard Fuller, who helped establish the Southern Baptist Convention and was more than once its president, wrote that though abusing your slaves is in fact sinful, owning another human being as a slave is not an absolute moral evil. While at the same time that you had confessing, professing believers saying that, you had African people who had been taken into slavery, some had been freed, some were still enslaved. They were using the Bible to speak out against slavery. The great Frederick Douglass wrote, What I have said respecting and against religion I mean strictly to apply to the slave-holding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one as good and pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. And to be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. And he was not alone. The abolitionist movement, made up both of white and black Christians, were dominated by people who believed that it was their Christian duty, it was the biblical mandate to fight against the evils of slavery because of their faith. So the question is, is slavery morally evil? Now here's the, the issue that we have. When all of us Think of slavery, we think of race-based slavery. Do we not? Because of the history of the United States, that's where our mind usually goes. Most of us in here are United States citizens and we grew up in this nation and some of you may not have, but th those of us that have, we certainly think of slavery as 
um, race-based slavery, both of the United States and of Britain. And so when we think of slavery in those terms, we immediately, with a resounding chorus, say, yes, that is wicked and evil and wrong and sinful, and it never should have existed. The confusion comes, the modern confusion comes, is how to interpret these passages of Scripture that talk about slavery. Because we're like, yes, slavery's wrong. The abolitionists were right. The kidnapping people and, and selling people and, and working people, like that. yes, all of that was wrong, completely wrong. And yet Peter says, slaves, be subject to your masters. What, what do we do with that? How do we handle that? And this is something that has come up in, in my ministry over and over and over again. How do we handle these texts? So here's what the plan is this morning. The plan is, is for me to explain what Old Testament slavery was, for me to explain what the Greco-Roman idea of slavery was, and then to get into the text with that understanding as to why Peter is saying what he's saying. Does that make sense? So first, Old Testament slavery. When we come to look at Old Testament slavery in the Bible, we need to remember that it had nothing to do with race. Most people in the Old Testament who were slaves were Jews who were slaves to Jews. It had nothing to do with race whatsoever. It had everything to do with economics and poverty. Please understand this. Old Testament slavery had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with economics. It had everything to do with poverty. And the Old Testament gives very specific detailed, regulated, legal rules for how this was supposed to be done, when this was supposed to be done, and why this was supposed to be done. So I, very quickly, Lord willing, am going to rattle off 10 things about Old Testament slavery that I think will help us understand that it is not at all the type of slavery we think about. It might not even do us good in the United States with our history to call Old Testament slavery, slavery. And I think you'll understand as we rattle these off, I think you'll understand, oh wait, yeah, that's not slavery at all like we think about it. Number one, citizens of Israel sold themselves as servants voluntarily due to poverty. How did you become a slave of someone or a servant of someone in the Old Testament, well, you voluntarily submitted yourself to work for this person. Leviticus 25 lays this out. You do realize there was no such thing as bankruptcy laws in Old Testament Israel, right? You couldn't just file for bankruptcy and then your, your debt just disappeared. So if you had a debt you could not pay, Right. If, if, if you let's say you didn't have a bunch of cattle or you didn't have a bunch of land or there was there was no uh, way to pay off a debt that you owed to somebody. What you would do is you would then go and you would actually voluntarily 
put yourself into slavery to this person that you owed money to and you would work off your debt. Now, what was interesting is, is that the, 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 the boss, right, the master had to take the whole family in and provide for them, provide food, shelter, clothing, all their necessities had to provide for them while they worked off the debt. There was no separation of family or anything like that. They had to bring them all in. This was completely voluntary and it was not to the profit of the owner. So what that means is if you voluntarily have to come work for me to pay off your debt, I don't actually make money off you. You just pay the debt off and we're done. Does that make sense? So I'm actually not profiting. The slave wasn't making a profit for the owner. They were paying off a debt. All right? Number two, slaves were released every seven years. So let's say you had this debt and you're trying to pay off this debt. And so you go and you and your whole family have to go and live with this person. And you begin working for this person and you begin paying off this debt. If after six years, the debt is not paid off on the seventh year, you are released from that debt. You do not have to work any longer for that. The idea of Israel was there for there to be no poverty. If you can help your brother, you help your brother. However, if your kinsman, this is Deuteronomy 15, however, if your kinsman is sold to you, you are to set him free on the seventh year. If someone is truly impoverished, the law prescribed for that person to be hired as a servant, but to be released after six years of service. The Jewish people were supposed to be sensitive and empathetic to their servants. God made it very clear. These people that are coming to work for you ought to be treated very well. You know what it's like to be a slave to somebody. Remember Egypt? Number three. Servants could voluntarily stay with their master. Deuteronomy chapter 15 as well. So let's say that I've worked for six years. I, let's say I was, I was in poverty and I was not doing well. And I came and I, and I owed this person money. And so me and my family came and we lived with this person. And I worked for six years and I helped pay off the debt that I owed. And let's say after six years we were done. And he was like, you're free to go. You know, if the debt's done, you're, you're, you're gone. And I say, well, listen, can I stay here and my family continue to work for you? Because this has been so wonderful. This has provided me with a job and security and taking care of my family. And many times, Israelite slaves would stay servants to their masters as a means of occupation for the rest of their life. Number four, the poor were given free food services to survive. Luke chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Many provisions were given to the poor in Israel. Uh, we may call it welfare today, right? That's how we would say it as welfare today. Provisions were made so that the destitute would never need to volunteer as servants. So, so for instance, let's say you don't have a debt to be paid, but let's say that you're just poor and you're struggling to have your needs met. It was set up 
so that this person didn't have to go, well, we can't meet our needs. Let's go sell ourselves as a, as a slave to somebody and work for them. No, no, no. Israel's going to provide for you so that if you don't have a debt to be paid, you don't have to go work for anybody. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to be provided for. You don't have to go and sell yourself as a slave. Number five, there was no interest on the loans. Exodus 22 and Leviticus 25. No interest. Because this wasn't about making a profit off the slave, was it? This was about paying back the debt. So on this debt, there is no interest that is paid. We contrast that with modern standards. We see that ancient Israel was incredibly humanitarian. Number six, slaves were given considerable time off. All slaves participated in religious holidays in Israel. So servants would take full or part-time days off for religious ceremonies. When you total up the percentage, do you know how many if just percentage wise, how much time a slave actually got off work 54% of the time. So slaves only worked 54% of the time to pay off their debt. There wasn't this working them to exhaustion. They only worked 54% of the time. Number seven, kidnapping a man and selling him into slavery was punishable by death. You kidnap a slave and make him come work for you, you kidnap somebody and make him come work for you, a foreigner is crossing over in your land and you grab that family and you kidnap them and you make them work for you, you will be put to death. Exodus 21. Number eight, families were commanded to harbor runaway slaves. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Let's say that a master is being abusive to a slave. And that slave runs away from the master to your house for safety. Guess what you legally have to do? Take care of that person and their family. You had to take them in. You had to provide for them. Number nine, if a master ever injures a slave, one working for him, they would be released and the master would be punished. Exodus chapter 21. This law, by the way, is unprecedented in ancient world where masters could treat their slaves however they wanted to. Not in Israel. Not in Israel. And number 10, masters and servants saw themselves as having the same master. Capital M. Job chapter 31, verses 13 to 15. Job says this, If I have despised the claim of my male and female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them and the same one fashion us in the womb? Job is saying this. I haven't mistreated my slaves that work for me. If I did, how could I stand before God? Didn't God who make me make them? What right do I have to abuse that person or to treat that person or to mistreat that person in a way that I shouldn't? Job believed that he was, he was going to be called to give an account for the way that he treated his servants. Job most likely existed before, lived before Israel existed. Therefore, even in the most ancient of times, there was a sense of human dignity. One writer says, we have the Bible, 
We have in the Bible the first appeals in world literature to treat slaves as human beings for their own sake and not just in the interest of their masters. So you can see from those ten, that is not at all how we think of slavery, is it? When we think of slavery in the United States and Britain and what was going on in Africa and what is still going on in parts of the world today, by the way, Old Testament slavery doesn't line up with that at all. This is a very different thing. Now, the reason I went through all of that is because I want you to know when you hear somebody say, oh, well, God was for slavery. Look at the Old Testament. You can say, no, 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 no. That is not what the Old Testament slavery was all about. I don't even like to call it slavery because it's not really slavery. Given, given our English definition of slave, right? It's not really slavery. It's a completely different system than what we have seen in our history and in Africa's history and in Britain's history. Does that make sense? First of all, we, we on the same page there. Okay. New Testament slavery. So now we get to Greco-Roman slavery. Now, guess what they don't have? They don't have the Mosaic law to govern how things are supposed to be done. They're going to make it up themselves. And when men, when men do what is right in their own eyes, does it ever go well? No, it does not. So the Greco-Roman slavery drifts more and more inhumane, more and more wicked. Slavery in the Greco-Roman culture, number one, was not a matter of race. It was a matter of the caste system. It was not a matter of race. Number two, most ancient slaves could be ex expected to be emancipated or freed during their lifetime. Usually by the time they were 30 years old. In fact, freed slaves became such a problem that Caesar Augustus passed a decree limiting the number of slaves that could be freed each year. Because so many the economy was struggling when they would release all these slaves, the economy would struggle. So he put a limit on it. Number three, many slaves were what we call household slaves. Most slaves in the Greco-Roman society were household slaves. However, there, were, there was a way for you to get educated as a slave in the Greco-Roman culture. Not everyone was a manual laborer. Some people could become doctors and teachers, accountants, administrators, musicians, artists. So when you were freed, some people actually had an education and a skill set that they could go and immediately when they were freed, begin making a living for themselves. Number four, many slaves received an education, training, specialized skills, which benefited both the master and the slave. Number five, as a result, Greco-Roman society slaves, when they were freed, had marketing skills. They could maintain a working relationship with their master. Okay, while I was a slave, I learned to be a blacksmith. Now I'm freed, but guess what? I can still be a blacksmith for my former master. Now, if it was all done in a loving, kind way, it could have been helpful to someone 
who was homeless and, and in poverty. Here's the problem. Slaves in the Roman Greco culture were not deemed as human beings. They had no rights whatsoever. So if you were a master and you wanted to abuse your slave, guess what? You could abuse your slave and there's nothing the law would do about it. If you wanted to rape your slave, you could rape your slave. You wanted to beat your slave, you could beat your slave. The punishment for anything was up to the master. It is estimated that about one-third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. As many as 60 million people. Now, the widespread practice of slavery does not give moral justification for its existence. Ownership of one person, and that's how Greco-Roman society set it up. You owned this person. That's not the way the Old Testament was set up. Old Testament slavery, you didn't own that person. Greco-Roman society, you owned that person. Any ownership of one person by another person results in the removal of freedom and therefore is wicked. Scott Anderson writes, Slave possessed few legal rights. They lacked honor. They were subject to whatever punishments their masters deemed appropriate. They were goaded into compliance through intimidation and threats. There were all kinds of problems, abuses, mistreatments, and exploitations. Nowhere in the New Testament writings does any Christian writer give moral justification for Greco-Roman slavery. Never do they say, it's a good thing, it should exist, it's wonderful, we should have it. Nowhere will you see any New Testament writer ever saying that. But here's what the New Testament writers understood. That this small Christian community was not going to overthrow Rome and its legal system. There was no way for Peter to go to this small little Christian community and say, here's how we're going to overthrow all the masters and overthrow Rome. They're looking at each other in a group like this, going, how would that happen? There was no citizens getting to vote. You know what? I think we just vote out Nero. It's not the way it worked. If a slave rebellion, and there were a few, if a slave rebellion rose up, guess what would happen to all the rebels when they were caught? They'd be executed. If Peter or Paul had commanded for all the slaves to be freed, guess how the Roman legal government would view a freed slave before, the, before they reached the age of 30? They would view them as still a slave which means no legal rights. It wouldn't have worked. By state law, these people would still have been considered slaves. They would have no right in the Roman government. They would have no way to provide for themselves or their family. So changing the situation of the Greco-Roman society was an impossibility explicitly. What Peter wants to do in writing is Peter wants to help his readers know how to live as Christians within such a society. 
He's trying to make pastoral sense of a difficult situation. He wants his readers to live in this wild, sinful Roman society in such a way that the gospel looks beautiful even under horrible circumstances. Now, I have to believe, given the ethic of Jesus Christ, given the ethic that is laid down to the apostles, if there was an explicit way that Paul and Peter could set it up to over or abolish or overthrow the Roman slavery system, they would have done it. Jesus says, love your neighbor, not own them. So if there was a way for Peter and for Paul to look at the system and say, you know what we can do? We can overthrow this. Then they would have done it. There was no way for that to be possible explicitly. Now, I want to read you what Esau Macaulay says. Esau Macaulay says this. He said, while they could not overthrow the system in the situation they were in, here's what he does say. However, New Testament theology provides the tools to imagine a world on the other side of slavery. The New Testament theology lays the groundwork for getting rid of slavery. That's why everybody in this room, when I said, was it wicked? Everybody's head went like this. Why? Because you know New Testament theology. You know what Jesus said about loving your neighbor. You know what Jesus said about viewing people with dignity and honor and respect and loving your enemies. And like we, so we know that it's wrong. That groundwork was laid in the New Testament. But in, for the earliest church, they weren't going to be able to change the system. So what Peter is going to do, and we're going to read this text again, but what Peter is going to do is Peter is going to help these people in the church that are in the lowest rung of society. He wants to teach them, here's how to make Jesus look beautiful in this terrible situation. So now I think we're ready to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Everybody understand now? Old Testament slavery, completely different thing. New Testament slavery, it's Greco-Roman. They got all kinds of problems with it. It's sinful and wicked, but it can't be overthrown and undone in the first century by this little tiny church that's just getting started. That makes sense too? Totally different than what happened in the United States. Right? Our system's set up totally different. We were able to abolish slavery because our system is different. So don't listen to people. When people start attacking Christianity because they say the Bible promotes slavery, they do not know what they're talking about. And any early American U.S. figure that used the Bible to defend slavery, it was wrong and wicked for them to do so completely wicked and wrong to use the Bible to defend the slavery in the United States and Britain. We clear on that too? I'm not talking to you as your friend there. I'm talking to you as one of your pastors. We clear on that, church. And there's a time I talk to you like my friends, but then there's times where I get a little ticked off and I'm like, we're all going to be on the same page on this. By the way, there are people today Christian ministers today that argue from the Bible that slavery is not bad. Just the way you treated the slaves is what mattered. It's wicked. Now let's talk about 1 Peter chapter 2. Take a deep breath for a minute. 
Because Peter's about to do something really beautiful. Really, really beautiful. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Let's read them again. Servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. First thing I want you to see in this point under slaves of God, the first thing I want you to see is that Peter dignifies the lowly. Peter is going to dignify the bottom in society. We need to think, first of all, about how Peter has already described believers. So far in this letter, Peter has described believers in beautiful terms. He has said that they are born again into the family of God. They have been given new allegiances. They have been set apart as God's own possession. They are a kingdom of priests as the temple of God. I would say that is a a standing by which we ought to rejoice over. Wouldn't you? That is who we are. But it may have very, been pos- very well been possible for slaves to believe, maybe that doesn't apply to me. I mean, maybe that can apply to other people in the church, but not me. I'm a slave that sweeps the floor of my master who beats me and treats me like garbage and abuses me. And and maybe, maybe that's not me. But now Peter is addressing them directly. This is huge. The Greco Roman society did not see slaves as moral agents. And in their writings, they would not even address slaves. So what Peter is doing by addressing slaves totally is contrary to everything else in society. The Romans didn't do this. They didn't address their slaves. And yet Peter is saying, hey, guess what? Slaves that are in this church, you have been born again in the family of God. You, that this society thinks is nothing, and you're not a moral agent or anything, you are a priest in the kingdom of God. You are a saint. You are in the light. You have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Peter is putting these Christian slaves on the same footing with every other Christian. 
in this church. He's saying, listen, I know that in society you may be low, but in the, in the house of God, you're as high as anybody else. So now all of the slaves in the church could say, all of this that he has said about believers that we have read, this is true for us. Even though we're the lowest in society, we too are born again into God's family. We too are new creations in Christ. We too are God's special possession. Peter is elevating them in a way that society would never dream of doing. He also is going to elevate them in social status because he calls all believers slaves of God. This is important. In verses 13 through 17 that I preached on two weeks ago, in verses 13 through 17, two weeks ago, Peter, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Peter is going to call everyone at the end of verse 16 servants of God. Look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. That word servants can literally be translated slave. So you're free, but live as a slave of God. Then when he moves to verse 18, and he uses the word servants. This also, it's a different Greek word, but it also can be translated slave or household slave. So look at what he's just done. He's saying, listen, in society, we may have different ranks. Society may see us as different, but in God's kingdom, we're all slaves of God. Look at what he's doing again. He's taking all the believers in the church. He's elevating them to the exact same plane. We're all slaves. He is calling all believers to be slaves of God. He's telling them all to submit to human institutions. So all should consider themselves as slaves of God. And the actual human slave who is obedient to his master is exemplifying the role that the entire Christian community is supposed to do. So... Slaves have to do what all Christians are being told to do, just in a very specific, difficult situation. So, all believers, Peter's letting everybody know right now, all believers, you are all the same in the family and the kingdom of God. Number two, submission is going to dignify the lowly. The submission of the slave to their masters is going to dignify the lowly. Look at what he says, specifically what he tells slaves to do. He tells them to submit themselves to their masters. Subject or submit. Now remember, this is what we talked about when we talked about government institutions. You are to do this willingly. And the essence of this submission is with all respect. How in the world do you submit to a master with all respect? This comes about because this Christian slave fears and reveres God. It's similar to submitting to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Paul even says in Ephesians chapter 6, he says this, Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So he says, submit with all respect, not just to those who are good and gentle, 
but even to the unjust masters. You see, it's easy to honor the Lord when the situation is good. It's easy to honor the Lord when the situation is easy. It's a totally different thing when your situation is harsh and unjust. Peter is calling the church, and specifically here these slaves, to something higher than the world would ever call them to be. Just an aside, by the way, you understand that when Peter uses the word unjust here, that's actually huge. How does Roman society view the treatment of slaves? Would they consider any of it unjust? No, they would not. You can treat the slave however you want to. There's no such thing as being unjust to your slave. You can treat the slave however you want. Peter says, that's not true. There's a way to treat that, that they treat you that is unjust. That's an aside, by the way. Another way of elevating these people. Peter recognizes this kind of submission is going to take massive endurance. He uses the word endure. Because this is going to come with sorrow and suffering. But when you submit with endurance in tough situations, it means that you are mindful of God. And in doing so, it is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. Think about what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, church, nobody in here views you if you have an earthly master. Nobody in here views you as a slave. You're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all slaves of God. But I know that some of you live in a system where you are working for a master and there is nothing you can do to change that situation. I wish there was something I could just give you that it would be over with and be done. But there's nothing we can do about that. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what God wants you to do. Glorify Jesus in this tough situation you're in. When you're treated unjustly, endure that sorrow and suffering. Endure it for the cause of Christ. And it will be a gracious thing in the sight of God. He could add, and you will lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This kind of submission says more about the character of the slave than it does the character of the master. That's what I mean when I titled this point that submission dignifies the lowly. When a slave in this situation, in sorrow and suffering, is having to endure unjust treatment by their master, they are dignifying themselves in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of God, and the eyes of this world. Then lastly, number three, Christ dignifies the lowly. So Peter dignifies the lowly. Submission by the slave dignifies the lowly. And here Christ dignifies the lowly. P Peter is now going to encourage slaves who are being treated unjustly in the highest way possible. He is going to say, if you are being mistreated an unjust situation and you are suffering in the situation you're in, you are following in the footsteps of your King Jesus. Man. I mean, he's almost trying to exalt them 
as high as he can get them. He's saying, listen, if you're going through this, guess who else went through this? Jesus did. You're just like Jesus. You're suffering like Jesus. And to make this point, he is going to use Isaiah chapter 53. Now, here's what he does. In verses 22 through verses 25, he is going to quote pieces of Isaiah chapter 53. That's the suffering servant passage. He's going to quote those passages. And then he's going to explain what they mean for this current context. In other words, he's going to do exactly what every preacher has to do. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means for us. Here's what Isaiah 53 says. Here's what it means for us because that was about Jesus. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the quote, tell you where the quote's from, and then tell you the explanation. And remember, he's doing all this to exalt the slave, to tell the slave, listen, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. In verse 22, he quotes Isaiah 53, 9. He says, He did not commit sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That is a quote from Isaiah 53, 9, talking about Jesus. Now he explains it in verse 23 of 1 Peter 2. Here's the explanation. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Follow in his footsteps, slave. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Don't threaten your masters. But instead, continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You can't change your situation. Don't hate your enemies. Give your situation to God. He'll judge rightly. Then he quotes Isaiah 53.4 and Isaiah 53.5. He does this in verse 24. He says, He himself bore our sins. By his wounds you have been healed. If you're familiar with Isaiah 53, you recognize that, right? Here's the explanation in verse 24. In his body, on the tree, he bore our sin. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus bore our sin on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what it means to be healed. By his stripes we are healed. What it means to be healed, according to Peter, is to live in righteousness. His final quote is in verse 25. It's from Isaiah 53, 6. For you were straying like sheep. All like sheep have gone astray. The explanation in 25, but now you've returned to the shepherd who is the overseer of your soul. It's important that we see the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as not just a historical event, but as an interpretive lens to understand the Old Testament. That's what Peter's doing. Peter presents the unjust suffering of slaves as the calling of Christians because Jesus was called to suffer unjustly. In essence, the slaves that, Peter, that are reading this letter from Peter, these Slaves are enduring unjust suffering at the hands of their master. They're looking like Jesus. You are following Jesus behind a shepherd when you suffer injustice at the hands of your master. 
It is in this condition, by the way, of following the shepherd that your souls are actually taken care of. So Jesus is dignifying the lowly by reckoning the slaves as his followers. Now I want to make another aside. If you have the means to change abuse, you change it. This is not a call for you to stay in an abusive marriage. Did you hear me, church? If you are being abused, this is not a call for you just to suffer like Jesus and be abused in your marriage. It's not what this is a call to. This is a very specific situation. A situation where nothing can be done about the circumstance. Do you hear me? Nothing can be done about this situation. So Peter is trying to be a pastor. And he's trying to say, since there's nothing we can do, here's how we look like Jesus in this. Aren't you so glad that God has come for the lowly? Or aren't you so glad that God has come into this world for the slave, for the outcast, for the nobody, for the oppressed? Aren't you glad that Jesus says to the nobody, the slave, the outcast, and the oppressed, you can glorify Jesus? No, not the high. Listen, the high and mighty people that are on the platform and, and they're preaching. You know, we often look at them and we say, oh, they're the ones that are doing the great work for the kingdom. No, we're the ones that are trying to equip the church to do the great work for the kingdom. I'm not doing the great work for the kingdom. Brother James is not doing the great work for the kingdom. You're doing the great work for the kingdom. Peter has just said to these oppressed people, do you know the impact you can have for the kingdom of God? Everybody else thinks you're nothing. Not Jesus. Jesus came and lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose again, so that the nobodies can be children of God. That they can return to a shepherd who will be the overseer of their soul, who will love and protect them and exalt them and glorify them when the world holds them down. This is the motivation for the people of God, to humble themselves. This is the motivation, to humble ourselves. You know what Peter was going to say later on? Peter's going to say, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, and in due time, He will exalt you. So, slaves who are in a situation where you can't do anything about it, humble yourselves. Be respectful and submit to these, even the unjust masters. This ain't the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. Jesus is going to vindicate you. Humble yourselves and in due time you will be exalted. You will be vindicated. God will make all things right. Now church, I know I've said a lot. I know I have. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. Okay? Old Testament slavery. Does it look anything at all from what we think about slavery? No, it does not. Greco-Roman slavery. Was it wrong and wicked? Yeah. Was there anything that the, the small beginning church could do to change that system? No, they could not. 
So what Peter is doing is Peter is being a pastor and he's trying to, to, to honor these people in the church who are slaves, lift them up, exalt them to the same level as everybody else in the church, dignify them, help them see themselves properly so that in this horrible situation, they can realize their wonderful place in the kingdom of God and the impact they can have on the gospel of Jesus Christ.